All right, Chris, where are we? What's going on? What's the date, atmosphere, general vibes? Uh, so yeah, we're just a, a stone's throw away from uh, Shimbashi Station, uh, standing next to the Nakagen Capsule Tower on uh, the day when this really like famous and classic building uh, is due to be demolished. Several people have already uh, come down, architectural enthusiasts who are just getting their last photographs of, uh, of this icon of metabolist architecture. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. On April 12th, demolition work began on the Nakagin Capsule Tower, one of the most famous examples of post-war metabolist architecture in Tokyo. On Tuesday, I met Japan Times editor Chris Russell at the base of the tower to see it one last time before it is torn down. You know, looking at it, you know, you can visibly see the rust. This one capsule right in front of us, I mean, the corner of it, I don't know what's <laughs> gone on there or what's happened to it, but it's, uh, it's looking very, very much worse for wear. So, yeah, I mean, it's clear that the tower is in a, a state of disrepair, but it's just, you know, I think the other thing I would say about this morning is just, you know, the, there is a feeling of, of sadness, I think, you know, the fact that it has got to this point. Chris has been following the story of Nakagin over the past few years as a battle has raged over its future. On one side, conservationists say it should be refurbished and restored to its 1970s retro-futuristic glory. On the other, developers have pushed for its demolition, citing issues such as earthquake safety, asbestos, and the huge cost of restoration as insoluble problems. As anyone familiar with the building will know, you know, there are these really sort of iconic, famous kind of round uh, windows in each of the capsules. And, you know, it's not been unusual to sometimes see kind of things put up uh, in those windows. But just on the western side of the building, uh, lower down, one of them has uh, this really bright kind of eye-catching sign in red, white writing saying hashtag save Nakagin. And, you know, seeing that, it kind of really brings home, you know, what, what's, uh, what's happening, what's, what's about to happen. Although it is now too late to save the capsule tower, this week on Deep Dive, Chris joins me to discuss the story of Nakagin and why he thinks it has captivated so many people over the years. Chris Russell, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Oscar. So a couple of years back, you wrote this really nice feature looking at the plan to demolish the Nakagin capsule tower. That day has finally arrived, and I know you're very sad about it. I certainly am. <laughs> but to start with, for our listeners who maybe haven't seen the tower or don't really know much about it, what is the Nakagin capsule tower and what initially drew you to it? Sure. So the uh, Nakagin capsule tower is a um, building designed by the architect Kisho Kurokawa. And he was a part of uh, the metabolist movement, this really significant post-war modernist uh, architectural movement. And the conceit of the building, the interesting feature is that it's made up of these capsules, which are these cuboid shaped rooms that literally bolt on to the kind of the main structure of the uh, of the tower. So you have all these kind of blocky um, things just sort of assembled, stuck on the side of this building, giving it a kind of a really interesting, irregular sort of geometry. And the uh, only window for each of these capsules is just one large round window. Mm. And so, you know, you have that as a kind of a key feature of the building too. So it's kind of unlike anything you've ever seen before. And it also happens to be right in the centre of Tokyo next to Shinbashi Station and on the western edge of Ginza. Yeah, so it's in this sort of 
quite upscale area. It's sort of surrounded by, you know, these massive glass and steel tower blocks. So it sort of just sticks out in this really kind of strange way. And when the building was uh, constructed, which was in 1972, you know, there wasn't really actually much around there. I believe it was a rail freight depot that was kind of next to it. <laughs> um, so it was just this weird, angular, jagged shape cutting against the sky. But yeah, now with the development of that area, the building is kind of a much more, it's kind of closed in. Mm. Still a weird angular shape, but it's got the giant Dentsu building just behind just it and, next a, and to a nice it, highway. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, it hasn't lost any of that strangeness. And it's a very kind of retro-futuristic building. It's very much a product of its time, I would say. The outward appearance, but also if you do go into the tower, just the kind of early 70s atmosphere is sort of is so strong <laughs> you go into the capsules i mean some of them have been modified or some of them fell into disrepair over time but you know there are some that are in kind of good condition or have been restored and you know it's sort of very simple but there's a panel which had what would have been at the time kind of the cutting edge technology and it's this reel-to-reel tape player and like a radio <laughs> and so on and yeah it sort of feels very old school but at the time it was very forward thinking yeah to the extent that you know some of the ideas behind it you know still have a lot of relevance so yeah it's this kind of retro futurism that this this building just really exudes mm. and just coming back to the exterior again it is an incredibly iconic building and you know it's been used i think the most recent time i've seen it be used was uh in the hugh jackman film the wolverine right um, <laughs> it was transported uh through the magic of editing to hiroshima where it was a, actually a love hotel i think in the film yeah <laughs> um, but it's in all sorts of music videos and like i think it's a pretty well-known feature of the tokyo landscape yeah and it's all like you know fashion shoots and so on as well it's a cool backdrop for people to use and so i think just between all those things it's developed this big fan base you know not just in japan but you know internationally and metabolism nakagin like there is just kind of standard stuff on any architectural course if you've studied architecture you've almost certainly studied metabolism nakagin or you have a good awareness of what it is and so today, as we're recording this, it's April 12th and today is the start of its demolition. But before we get, you know, into the process of how that's happening and how we got to that point, let's go back to its beginning. What is the story behind the Nakagin Capsule Tower? Yeah, so I think there maybe we just need to kind of start with metabolism itself, this architectural movement. So that emerged in kind of the late 50s and it was sort of came up like students of one of Japan's legendary modern architects, Kenzo Tange. And for this sort of architectural conference that took place in, in Tokyo in the 1960s, they drew together these ideas, combined these ideas and presented a, a manifesto. Key to what the metabolists were interested in or what kind of underpinned their sort of philosophy and designs was a sort of sense of, you know, or kind of emphasis on process mm. um, and adaptation renewal and so often that for this they were drawing on the natural world you know they had some other japanese cultural references that informed them as well but nature was a big part of it and ideas of like cells modularity spines it's kind of a common feature of a, a metabolist designed to have some kind of sort of spine as it were and then off that other kind of elements that would be sort of modular or replaceable right it was, it was kind of imagining a lot of buildings as 
being a living part of the city, right? Not yeah. just a static thing that was, once it was built, it was there in perpetuity, but something that would evolve over time as if it was a living organism. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, yeah, seeing it as living organisms is key. You kind of see a lot of this expressed in the Nakagin capsule tower. Again, it has that sort of spine with the kind of the main tower structure. And then off it, you have all these capsules. And so in terms of the adaptation aspect, and the initial plan was or in theory, still, that the, you know, these capsules can be removed and replaced. Mm. Uh, now, the practice doesn't quite match up to that because of the way that they're fitted in. To remove one capsule, you'd have to take out everything above it. So if you wanted to replace the capsule that was at the very bottom, you'd have to lift out every single one that was above it. Yeah, and, I mean, also the capsules are kind of packed in so closely together. I mean, we're talking probably inches between some of them. I just don't think it would be a very easy uh, process either. But that was the idea, that people could replace the capsules or they could be moved perhaps to some other structure that could accommodate them. Mm-hmm. And you said the architect behind it was Kisho Kurokawa. What's his story and how did he become involved with the metabolist movement? Right, so yeah, so Kurokawa, he was um, you know one of these founders of the metabolist movement and he was a former student of Tange. Uh, so he was born in 1934. So I think, you know, he grew up through the war and that experience carried with him. So, I mean, he worked on, you know, a number of different projects, but you know, I don't think it's unfair to say that the Nakakin Capsule Tower is maybe what he's best known for. You know, so he lived until 2007. And, you know, it was around the time of his death that the issue of the building's demolition was really ramping up because you know that was the year when they actually crossed the threshold in terms of the number of votes they needed to from capsule owners to proceed with the demolition but you know he outlined a plan for what he thought could save the building while kind of still maintaining its kind of integrity in mm. terms of kind of aesthetics but also the philosophy behind it and so that would have seen the um, capsules all replaced because those capsules were only meant to actually lasts for about 25 years his idea was you know we can keep replacing these and then that should make the structure the building viable for hundreds of years as a result i mean when you go go up to them and actually see the capsules they are not big rooms i think they measure 2.5 by 4 meters wide very small who who were they designed for and you know what was the idea behind the tower sure yeah i mean just before i answer that i mean just sort of a funny point i mean you mentioned uh, wolverine earlier on just given the small size of the capsules basically they're too small for hugh jackman <laughs> um you know i guess also it's the the sort of technical aspects of filmmaking, you know, the size they need for that as well, but just also because he's a big guy. Yeah. Um, so filming in the capsule just wouldn't have worked. So they had to go and recreate a, one on a large, slightly larger scale, you know, in some sound studio somewhere, soundstage somewhere. But in terms of who the actual capsules were for, I mean, maybe not Hugh Jackman, but uh, they were initially intended for businessmen. So kind of working in Ginza or nearby areas, you know, a place for them to stay after a long day of overtime or what or you know perhaps dining out entertaining you know on that point you know there are no kind of cooking facilities with the capsules you know you've got your tape deck and radio on a, a fold-out desk but yeah nothing to actually cook food with so i feel like it's ironic that nakagin is now in the uh, shadow of the dentsu building <laughs> right right yeah um which has its own uh issues with overwork yeah, yeah so it was aimed at businessmen but i suppose in line with this sort of metabolist 
philosophy that kind of gradually changed and by the end you know a lot of the owners were kind of in or people actually living there or in various kind of creative fields and that's a lot of what the building has kind of been used to uh, used for until those residents were, were made to leave for the demolition so when i did the tour i was told actually you know you've got really good soundproofing in these capsules so it's great if you want to practice your uh, instrument you know play the drums or something like that then it's no problem um you can't say that about your average tokyo home so <laughs> that's kind of score one to knack again in that respect <laughs> yeah so you had other people doing different creative pursuits there was like a cosplayer who would like dj from her capsule and live stream that as i say kind of fashion shoots photo shoots um you know were kind of a popular thing to do at nakagin or use it for when there was kind of this hope that you know the tower would be preserved and this question of how that would work and what it would be used for one of the ideas that was being thrown around was that it would become maybe some kind of cultural center mm. that it would kind of like lean into that sort of aspect of Nakagin and allow it to have like a continued function as opposed to just preserving in amber as if like nothing had changed since the 70s. How does Nakagin go from being an icon of 1970s futurism to demolition? Sure. So, I mean, as I say, you know, in 2007, this key threshold uh, was reached um, in terms of support for the demolition by owners. So even by 2007, then it had fallen into a state of disrepair. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that that's also kind of the context is that, yeah, this state of disrepair and and that even now, you know, you you know, we talk about this preservation project, but, you know, looking at it from the outside now, it's just kind of clear that this is not the building that it was when it was unveiled in, in the 70s. And, you know, various problems have emerged uh, over time. I mean, I think it's been a decade since the building didn't have hot water. Um, um, so actually a kind of temporary shower is something that you might see uh, perhaps like a, a music festival uh, was kind of installed on the, uh, on the ground floor outside and on top of that you know there are issues in terms of earthquake resistance the building is full of asbestos which is actually going to complicate the sort of demolition a little bit it definitely has its fair share of of problems and you know that i think is the big argument for the demolition that some of these problems are kind of just insoluble or too expensive to fix. So you said in 2007 it was due to be demolished and that a certain number of residents need to agree to that. What was the process behind the demolition and why didn't it happen 15 years ago? Right, so I'm not entirely clear why it is, but 80% was this crucial threshold of support that was needed. And I think there had been votes before that, but it hadn't reached that stage. But then it finally did, and the owner of the building at the time, the uh, Nakagin Group, you know, they had these plans for redevelopment of the site. But then, because of the global financial crisis, you know, the Nakagin Group couldn't proceed with those plans for redevelopment anymore, and so then the capsule tower had continued in this state of limbo. Mm, so it's just kind of stuck as it was with neither the money to actually like repair it and take it back up to the standard to make it properly livable. Right. But also couldn't be torn down and redeveloped at the time. 
Right. And so, you know, one of the things that the preservation group was trying to do was to find a conservation minded buyer mm. that would, you know, had the money to buy and also the money to uh, to fix it up. And, you know, we're talking kind of billions of yen mm. to, to do that, to replace all the capsules, to deal with the asbestos, all the other kind of issues. So it wasn't going to be cheap, but they did have uh, someone that they were speaking to, but in just sort of, I guess, a cruel twist of fate you know we had the pandemic and that kind of undermined uh, those efforts to find a buyer you know on top of that there was meant to be a international conference for this organization called Docomomo which mm. kind of researches and kind of tries to conserve, uh, conserve modernist architecture they were meant to be doing this international conference in Tokyo and I think that was in the fall of 2020 and kind of the hope was that that would be a way to kind of you know highlight the building further um, but also maybe gain some more momentum around the plans to save it obviously because of the pandemic that didn't happen and eventually it was took place in 2021 but only online so you know that was also kind of a little bit of a missed opportunity mm -hmm. what was the final nail in the coffin that actually led to it being demolished this month i don't know that it was necessarily one trigger as such but i mean you know they failed to find the conservation-minded buyer. And then on top of that, the building was bought by uh, a company called Capsule Tower Building with plans for the demolition uh, redevelopment. You know, they were in a position to actually kind of go ahead with that. And that kind of sealed Nakagin Capsule Tower's fate. Mm -hmm. And do we know what's going to replace it? I haven't been able to find anything uh, on that. I think it would be safe to say that it's going to be something a lot less interesting um than the Nakagen capsule tower and you know i think maybe this is something we'll touch on later on but i think that's kind of a crucial thing in this kind of preservation debate um i think it would be easier to accept the demolition of Nakagen if you were confident that something at least somewhat as bold and daring was going to be put up in its place but it's more most likely just going to be a bog standard modern office building if, if i had to guess mm. so what's the reaction actually been to the demolition of knuck again yeah i think it's a little bit mixed i mean obviously a lot of the kind of most vocal people are lamenting its destruction earlier when we were at the uh, at the site we spoke to you know, a freelance architect who'd gone down to um to see the tower you know on this official start of the demolition he said he was quite sad about it sad to see it go but at the same time you know he noted the issues around it and that you know perhaps its time had come you know mm -hmm. it kind of served its purpose i think there's also a kind of emerging hot take as it were which is that yeah it's cool but whatever <laughs> you know um it's no great loss and then i guess on top of that there's a committed group of people that just really hate modern architecture full stop you know, we talk about the distinctive look of the building, mm. you know, for a lot of people, like that's the appeal and that's what kind of makes it so amazing. But in other people's eyes, then it, it's just ugly. It's an <laughs> eyesore. And, you know, especially in light of the kind of disrepair it's fallen into. I mean, when the tower opened, it was this sort of almost gleaming thing. Mm. The capsules now are just incredibly dirty. So I'm sure there are also people who they don't, yeah, let's knock this thing down. Let's, let's move on. Let's, let's go to the next stage.
I mean, both of us are from the UK, which has very strict laws about preserving buildings that are of note or architectural significance or have some kind of history to them. What do you think the demolition of the Nakagan Tower says about preservation of buildings in Japan? Yeah, I think the general consensus is that it's a bit lacking. Certainly in Tokyo, there's a real strong scrap and build culture. I mean, just walking around, it's not unusual to come across a construction site um, or just you'll get weird plots of land that go for a life cycle as like several car parks until eventually there's an apartment block there or something. So it's kind of the culture, at least in the capital. I mean, something like Kyoto, it's a little bit different because there's all the history there and there's such a, an attachment to kind of traditional culture in that city. You know, so I mentioned Dokomomo earlier, their Japan chapter is over time kind of built up this list of notable modernist buildings in Japan. And, you know, Nakagin is naturally on that list. But, you know, like a lot of them have been knocked down. I mean, in terms of the actual efforts to preserve Nakagin, you know, there was a petition um, kind of addressed to uh, Yuriko Koike, the governor of Tokyo, asking her to kind of step in. And mm. this was bounced around different departments and ultimately nothing was done sort of with the justification that this is a private building like it's nothing to do with us and yeah in terms of kind of like listings heritage you know in japan often that's sort of geared towards yeah traditional architecture insofar as it's something more modern often it's to do with the kind of the meiji restoration so it's like a mine <laughs> or a steel mill or something like that, which, you know, about what it lacks in architectural beauty perhaps makes up for it in, in historical significance. But, you know, those can also be kind of controversial too. But yeah, I think it's a real struggle for these buildings to to survive. And the Nakakin is just one of these like most notable instances of that. Are there arguments in favour of this lack of preservation or lack of conservation I think the one that I've seen is that because Japan places less emphasis on conservation of buildings, it actually allows it to knock things down and rebuild them faster, which in turn means that Tokyo has an abundance of housing stock and rent is actually lower as a result when compared to big cities like New York mm -hmm. and London. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that argument. Tokyo does have the level of construction that means that it can sort of match demand a lot better than yeah someone like london or new york can at the same time i kind of feel that dragging nakagin into that is a little bit wrong-headed the preservation of nakagin wouldn't have any material impact on either just in terms of the kind of the space that it occupies or the act of preserving it and what message that sends wouldn't have any material impact on this construction frenzy i guess or willingness to demolish and rebuild and what do you think is the broader significance of the demolition of nakagin beyond the fact that it's an interesting looking building in the heart of tokyo yeah so i think you know you're at the start you kind of asked what it means to me and i mean yeah i think there's sort of kind of two aspects to this one is a kind of a wider issue of renewal and regeneration to me it's this question like what does it get replaced with you know we're kind of seeing these larger scale regeneration projects being rolled out across tokyo shibuya is a good example but also smaller neighborhoods like shimokitazawa and 
I thought a lot of the time these aren't really kind of, they're not even trying to sort of maintain a continuity with what was there before. And I think so often the replacement, yeah, is it's an office building, it's a hotel, it's another shopping mall. I'm not going to say that those things don't have some value. They clearly will do. But I think you have to kind of ask yourself, what is the sort of net benefit? Is there a net benefit? So with Nakagin, I think it brings that issue into sharp relief. But to me, it's also the ideas that are kind of contained um, within uh, within Nakagin or what it represents. And, you know, we talk about the kind of the reaction to it and that sadness. And I think, yeah, I mentioned the kind of the retrofuturistic look of the building. Mm. And I feel you can't look at Nakagin without having this feeling of a future lost. I think it really taps into this idea of like a nostalgia for the future. You know, when we could kind of really believe that there was all this kind of exciting progress ahead of us. You know, and it's this kind of thought that I guess encapsulated in this question of, you know, where's my jetpack or where's my flying car? You know, I promised this in the 50s. It's 2022 yeah, now. <laughs> 2022. And I just still do not have these things. You know, Nakagin, it's kind of that utopian or progressive mindset. And I think that's a sort of, stirring thing um, when you look at the building but also because it has this metabolist philosophy which kind of underpins that it also acts as a way into sort of a different way of thinking so for me it's this fantastic rupture in the urban fabric it kind of acts as like a portal into just asking all these different questions thinking about these kind of different ideas and we live in a very <laughs> understatement strange time we're kind of over a decade from the financial crisis we're still in a pandemic you know we've lived through all these kind of big changes in the last uh, last two or so years and you know then on top of that we're also living in an era of climate change mm. but at the same time there seems to be a sort of dearth of big ideas big solutions to a lot of these issues that we're facing the dominant sort of response seems to be quite reactionary um, or inward looking so for me it's sort of to look at Nakagin is to kind of have a reminder that big ideas are possible I think it's also perhaps a re reminder to have, maintain a little bit of healthy skepticism about them as well you know of course there can be a dark side to these things where they don't quite work mm. as planned and yeah you know maybe so I say Nakagin is it does represent that too but I think it's sort of a a signal it's a, a monument to just thinking big and because we're in an era where that kind of big thinking is increasingly needed i mean you mentioned climate change there one of the core philosophies of metabolism was this idea of a living city a evolving city stuff that could be reused recycled um you know you don't need to tear down a whole building just to replace one pod do you think it has ongoing relevance then when we're thinking about issues like climate change yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something that people have looked into or kind of starting to look into more. You know, I know there are some kind of research projects examining metabolism through this frame of climate change adaptation, building cities that kind of evolve, that have a kind of a resilience as, as a result. There's an obvious connection there between that and the climate crisis, mm. you know. As the sea levels rise, you take the capsule from the bottom and put it <laughs> yeah, back put, at the top. <laughs> or, yeah, put it on a van, drive it a little bit more inland or something. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, but the climate crisis is going to put cities under all sorts of stress, rising sea levels, heat waves, you know. And so having plans, urban planning, architectural plans that have some kind of responsiveness built into them, it just seems to kind of dovetail very well with that kind of need. You know, so I say people have looked into it. I mean, uh, so for instance, you had like Shimizu Corporation, they had this idea of what they called uh, green float. And, you know, this is sort of a bit more just thinking kind of big, kind of crazy thoughts and so on, <laughs> as opposed to kind of a super practical project. But they came up with this plan for sort of cities to float on the ocean. They're sort of kind of flower shaped and you know, the intention is that they would be carbon neutral or perhaps even carbon negative. And they're kind of like posited as a potential solution for, you know, sort of island nations that are threatened by rising sea levels or, you know, could even be wiped out by those. So that's kind of one way of engaging with metabolism in through that climate lens. Just before the start of the pandemic, the uh, Mori Art Museum had this exhibition um, called Future in the Arts, AI Robotics, Cities, Life, How Humanity Will Live Tomorrow. Bit of a mouthful, but that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. um, and this actually had a, a section on what it called neo-metabolism. And this is kind of the idea that, yeah, the original metabolists, they were just kind of ahead of their time and the technology couldn't really support the ideas that they mm. had. Whereas increasingly we can. Um, so yeah, they had this section on neo-metabolism that was explicitly linked to environmental concerns and kind of pointing to different materials now that would maybe lend themselves to that sort of modularity and like fungibility that was kind of a core part of metabolism. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Oscar. That was Japan Times editor Chris Russell. Thanks so much to him for joining me. And I've linked his articles about Nakagin and its demolition in the show notes. Also in the Japan Times this week, although Japan's borders remain shut to tourists, the country has begun to grant visas to a wider range of people, including the parents of foreign residents in Japan and family members who need to take care of sick relatives. However, fiancés, partners and people in relationships with a resident in Japan remain unlikely to be granted visas, according to an official at the Foreign Ministry. Japan reopened its borders in March for people who have sponsors such as business travellers, foreign students and researchers. And so far, about 30,000 foreign students have entered the country, with the government estimating 80,000 more will arrive by the end of May. That story and all the latest news from Japan at japantimes.co.jp. That's it for this episode. If you've got a particular memory of Nakagin you'd like to share, I'd love to hear them. You can email the show at deepdive at japantimes.co.jp or find both me and Chris on Twitter. We'll be back next week, but until then, stay well, and as always, Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.